Welcome to Today Art Loud. I'm Judy Herman, and it's really exciting for me today to be connecting with Miriam Sherwood because I've just seen your amazing, beautiful show, Meet Me in Bratislava. I feel I would like to go and meet you in Bratislava, but I almost feel as though I already have. So thank you for joining me, and thank you for such an incredible evening. Thank you. Oh, thank you very <laughs> much for coming. It is done like a party. There are two things that really connected with me, to, which I hope will take people into this straight away. You call it a grandad cabaret. So that really, really got to me straight away. It's such, such a brilliant idea. Um, but it's because you didn't meet your grandfather, and yet you sort of know him through his work and through bringing him to other people, I think. So you name him, because I don't want to pronounce him wrongly. So name yeah. your granddad. So his name, uh, well, his real name was Ladislav Shvar, um, but he took on a pseudonym during uh, the Second World War, which was Jan Kalina, um, and everyone called him Lazo. Right, which is sort of like halfway between the two, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. It's just a shortening of Ladislav. That's what I thought, yes, I was guessing that, yes. I think, in a way, that already brings you close to him, because it's so nice to have a sort of short form of someone's name. You feel you're addressing them by, by the, the name they like to be called, so it's great. Yeah. And you're—I would call it lucky that you—that he, even though you didn't meet him, he was so multi-talented and so off the wall, a satirist, dramaturg, collector of jokes, as you say, writer of cabarets, so many cabarets, and radio star. That's what really incredible. So we'll come to that in a moment. Now, my grandfather, whom I didn't meet, was a, a Yiddish journalist who legged it, and I do mean legged it because he was—he limped. He, he looked, as far as we know, he had this terrible limp, limped with his dad across Europe to get to England from Russia mm. um, and was a Yiddish journalist. But there's nothing left. Now, he wrote for a paper in New York. He wrote for a paper in London. My father remembers him going and posting the stuff in the post box to go to New York. Um, but there's nothing left. Nothing left. No. And so all I know, all I can tell you is he was called Nat Lazarus. But um, that's as far as it goes. Great so, name. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, great name for a Jewish journalist writing in Yiddish. So I I sort of want feel I have a little bit of... You're sharing your granddad with us, as well as, with your, as well as finding him. And your show is incredibly inclusive. How did you hit on this idea of having... As I, I think one of your lyrics is, we had the biggest party in the darkest time. I wonder if that it, it, the whole show is like the biggest party. It's so inclusive. I mean, you come through the door and you get a class of um, the, the schnapps that taste like paraffin, but that's all good. <laughs> Shot class. And, and, yeah, and you're in the moment. Yes. Yeah, so what's it called exactly? Schnapp? It's called Borovichka. Borovichka, yes, yes. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, but I think it, it does add to the party atmosphere. It makes it, doesn't it? So we're sharing something straight away. So yeah. how did you, first of all, how did you find, I mean, presumably you're, you know, it's your grandmother, isn't it? She was able to, to help you into all this. Is that right? How did, um, or your well, mother more? So it was, um, it was the, I found all of the material, so the original scripts of my granddad in my grandma's flat after she died. Um so I grew up um, spending holidays with my grandma in her flat in Munich. Um, and his, my granddad's cabaret posters were up on, there was a wall that was just tessellated with only his posters. Um, and his books 
um, which were published after his death, which um, my grandma made sure um, that happened. They were around. And so I sort of knew about him, but my grandma and my mum, it's not that they didn't talk about him, um, but it wasn't, didn't, didn't come up that often, which I found, on reflection, I found a bit funny because my grandma told me lots and lots of stories from her childhood and things like that. But I think, I think it was a very painful thing for them. It, the thing that they found most um, unfair, I think, of all the persecution and um, and mistreatment that they had, the thing that really stung was that um, he died only two years after they emigrated to Germany. So they were sort of finally free. Um, and he had to just become quite ill in prison. And um, so I think it was a painful thing. And so, mm. yeah, I didn't realise. My mum knew that his cabaret scripts were in that flat, but I had no idea. And um, when we had to pack up my grandma's flat, we discovered all of this material. And so, yeah, I suppose my grandma sort of inadvertently uh, led me to it. And also... Um, her death, I, you know, I found really, really difficult. And immersing myself in Lato's story really gave me uh, something to do that was a sort of loving distraction, um, a way mm. of doing something that I thought she would care about, but wasn't was a little bit to one side of her. So I didn't have to kind of look her directly in the. Mm. I um yeah so so it was really I think I don't really sure I'd always sort of had this idea in the back of my mind that it would be a good idea to do a cabaret about someone who wrote cabarets you know about my granddad but I really didn't know where to start and then when I found the actual scripts I thought you know this is a way in and I started talking to my two of my best friends who are composers and they were interested in helping me turn it into a cabaret because I don't really have any musical skill myself. I don't um, know about that. You're a fine um, singer. <laughs> yeah, really, really mean, a mean singer, I would say. Yes, you must name this wonderful pair because they, they're going to go far, aren't they? If they no, haven't so, already, probably. Mm. Uh, so the composers are Tom Andrews and Will Gardner. Um, Tom wrote music for the live instruments and Will wrote the electronic pop songs for the show so it's a kind of combination and um kind of broadly speaking the um the live music sort of tracks the timeline of my grandfather's life and the pop songs tend to accompany the bits of the show that are about my connection with Lassa. It's a wonderful mixture it's not chronological but it's got a sort of it's not a timeline exactly is it it sort of is and it isn't but there, as you say there is a through line and during which we get to, to know him now I Tom is the singer isn't he is that right yeah, yeah. um I thought I I reckon he's sort of channeling all three Marx Brothers at once. I mean, partly because you you that they're, they're wonderfully dressed. I love them in the white shirts and the bow ties. It's terribly middle Europa, isn't it? But it's sort of Marx Brothers as well. Yeah. And so there's yeah, I got that feeling of anarchy from him. He's got this incredible face, 
and wonderful diction, of course, and it's brilliant. There's a lot of lovely harmonising. There's a bit of a cappella in there too. And it's the lyrics are absolutely superb, which we can hear, of course, as I said. So, um, so it's a, those are not your grandfather's songs, but I think they're channelling him too, worryingly. Sort of a bit spooky. But, <laughs> but make, what do you yeah, think? They're a mixture, so... Um... There's a song, uh, there are a couple of songs that Tom's written and, and yeah, the lyrics are all his. Um, and then there are some songs where, um, for example, the final song, which I sing, um, we've taken my granddad's lyrics um, and Will's written new music for them. Mm. And then we sing a kind of mixture of the original Slovak lyrics and then a translation mm. that my mum and dad helped me do oh. into English. Um so, yeah, it's a mixture. There's one song that they sing when they come in for the party, which is a, a classical tune and my granddad's lyrics, and that's exactly how it is on a radio archive recording that we were able mm. to listen to in Bratislava. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a real spectrum. Hmm. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I, I love... Look, I, we should probably go through a little timeline of, of your grandfather's life, but... The wonderful, old, brilliant idea, which I've done myself quite a lot, of writing new, putting words to classical uh, music that doesn't have any already. It's such a great trick. It's a great trick for radio as well, obviously. And, um, you know, many have done it. Kit and the Widows, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They're, well, go and look them up, because you'll like them. They're, they're, uh, but, you know, a lot of us do it, and he's obviously done it brilliantly too. And, as I said, done it on the radio. So let's just do a timeline of... No, Lacco, have I got that right? Lazzo. Lazzo, I haven't got it right. Lazzo's life. He was born in what was then Czechoslovakia, in the eastern part of Slovak, the Slovak part, in 1913. Um, he fell in love with cabaret at the age of 17. He heard it on the radio. He heard um, a Czech cabaret double act on the radio, Voskovets and Verich, um, and he was immediately enamoured with them. There wasn't so much of a cabaret scene in the Slovak part of Czechoslovakia at that time. He um, followed in their footsteps, so they, that double act studied law in Prague, so he also studied law in Prague, and he went every night to uh, watch them perform in the evenings, and in fact struck up a deal with the uh, conductor that every night after the show they borrowed the script from him because they didn't have photocopies in those of course days. Not, yeah. They would mm. cycle frantically home, copy out as much of the script as they could that night, cycle back in the morning, return the script, and so on and so on until they had copies of um, of the shows themselves. And uh, while he was at university, he actually really fell in love with film. And um, he started getting a bit of experience. He was an extra in some films so that he could see what it was like on the set. Um, but he was then uh, uh, had to go and do military service for, I think, about 18 months. And um, in that time, he basically missed the boat, he felt. Um, the sort of anti-Jewish laws had started oh. coming in and he mm. sort of missed his chance to really get involved in film. And so he came back to his hometown in Preshov in, uh, in Slovakia. And um, he got a job for a radio station and he wrote cabarets for the radio station, um, which I think lots of people find surprising that you would have cabaret on the radio. But, I, I don't, uh, I'm not surprised. I think it's wonderful. And obviously it's lovely to see people. 
But if you think of all the radio comedy that we have that has right yeah. from the word go with lots and lots of breaks for music in it, exactly. it's just one step on from there and it's beautiful. Exactly. It's like a, yeah, it's synonymous with a kind of variety review. Exactly. And, mm. um, Only and more so satirical. He's... More, He's always satirical, isn't he? Is he or yeah. not? Yes. He wasn't the most uh, politically out there. Um, he was just, you know, just poking fun. Um, and... Yes, he did that, and he had a really, what seemed like a wonderful boss who really valued him and um, protected him. So uh, my granddad was Jewish, and this boss um, managed to sort of finagle a way for my granddad to stay and work at the radio station by getting him permission to work as a, in a technical job, um, which was allowed, and advised him to start using a pseudonym. And when that permission stopped being valid, he and his mother were deported, but just to a transit camp. And then I think that what must have happened there is that the boss, again, lobbied the radio station, the main radio station in Bratislava, which was also um, broadcasting uh, my granddad's work. And they sent a, um, what was it called, a phonogram, like a telegram of audio voice message. Wow. I didn't uh, even know there was such a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's just a kind of dictated um, message saying that they needed him um, because they needed, uh, because Cabaret was really popular and that none of their Aryan employees could provide it. So they um, they needed him. So that got him out of the transit camp and his mother um, and then he kept working and he didn't even, he didn't have to wear a yellow star. He was free to walk around Bratislava until, um, I think about 40. So that was in 42. And then I think for a couple of years, and I think in 44, then it, it was becoming very extreme after the Slovak national uprising, they cracked down even more Then he was in hiding for one or two years. Um, a long time, of course, and he kept writing prolifically, which I sort of uh, uh, make make fun of uh, at the beginning of the show by reading a list of everything he managed to do while he was hiding from the Nazis. Yes, but it, well, I think you're certainly making fun of it, but actually it, it's incredible. It's a celebration, isn't it, it that someone can yeah. do that even yeah. in hiding from the Nazis. It's yeah, shaking it, your fist in their face, isn't it? Yeah, it, it boggles the mind, really. Mm. And then after the war, um, he, like like most uh, people who were anti-fascists, were um, big supporters of the new communist regime um, and had a lot of hopes for that. And um, he was part of the group that opened the first Slovak cabaret venue. Um, and uh, he wrote cabarets there, including a show called Rendezvous in Bratislava, which is what our show yeah. is named after. And, and what I love is that because I thought that was your brilliant title but in a way it's even more brilliant that it's his brilliant title. It's, and, his title yeah, yeah. it's got to be up there falling about laughing and applauding you I'm sure. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Blowing you kisses from above. So that was actually the first show that opened that cabaret venue and um, yeah he, he wrote uh, prolifically cabarets. Uh, he wasn't a performer himself but he was a dramaturg um, he founded the uh, Department of Dramaturgy at the um, uh, University of the Arts in Bratislava. Mm. He wrote books about film, about cabaret. He was able to, in the early part of the communist regime, travel to Germany and wrote about the cabaret scene there and, and made radio programs about that. 
and then uh, when the the Prague Spring came along and um, Dubček was in power, the party at that time, and uh, he and so many intellectuals and, and many, many people were very excited about the possibility of um, reforming communism and uh, uh, yeah, he was he was as involved as as many others. And as a result of that, after the Soviets and the other Warsaw Pact countries cracked down on that at the in August 1968, um, he became a, a target um, of the government. And actually, my my mum and I found out just a couple of years ago after I'd started making the show. I said to her, "Are you interested in looking at the um, secret police files on your parents?" Because she never had, and she said, "Yes, why not?" And we got in touch with the Institute of uh, Public, I think it's called the Institute of Public Remembrance, who look after the secret police files in Bratislava. And uh, as it happened. My granddad's file was um, an exceptional one in that, for some reason, it hadn't been destroyed. Um, my grandma's file was hundreds of pages, but only the index page remains. Whereas, for some reason, my granddad's file remains, and there's something like 3,500 pages um, intact. And uh, the man who works there happens to have spent the, uh, the last year or so digitizing those files. So... We had immediate, we had access to all of these files. I said he was smiling down on you, didn't I? I think he's um, yeah. possibly, he might just be doing a little bit of um, celestial directing here. I possibly, think? because I mean, some of those files Stage are, managing, are, I think. They are absurd, and we found out things that we had no idea. Um, my mum didn't know. So we, we knew that there was a bug um, in my grandparents' flat. Oh, yes, you show that, don't you, in, in the uh, show? That was, it, show, I mean, we yeah. laugh now, but it must have been yeah. terrifying. Yeah, but we, now, so many years later, we found out there was also a bug in their um, sort of uh, holiday cottage where they thought they were completely safe. You know, it, it had no running water and no electricity. <laughs> no running water, just a running mic. They managed them. to have a mic yeah. there, yeah. Mm. Um, and it's they've got all these operational files about, you know, how they, for months, they were trying to uh, put the bug in the flat and... Um, and how they eventually did it. And, and the man there explained to us that uh, my grandparents were a target, not just because they were kind of prominent cultural figures and because they had been outspoken during the Prague Spring, but also because they were Jewish. Um, mm. And, you know, the, the anti-Semitism um, really just continued uh, in full throttle in the new regime, just in a different way. Um, and so... Yeah, they were. They discovered the bug in their flat because um, a neighbour was uh, fixing his mother's radio and accidentally tuned in to the frequency of the bug and like, oh. heard my grandma's voice. Um, and actually, my grandma did work on the radio, so at first he thought that mm. it was just her, and then he realised she was talking about something very boring, um, <laughs> and he worked out what was happening, and he yeah. actually let them know. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so about a year after they discovered the bug, both my grandparents were arrested. Um, I think originally they really wanted to find something on my grandma because she was a journalist and she was traveling abroad and um, they really didn't like that. But they gave up and the, the things that they managed to make stick happened to be to do with my granddad. Um, and they kept him, the, the sort of trial and everything, that took about a year. So he was um, 
Was he in prison during that? Yeah, he was before he'd been convicted, mm. he was um, already in prison. And then he was sentenced in the end to two years in prison. Mm. So he, that meant he spent uh, one more year. Uh, oh, no, I don't, I'm not sure if that's right, actually. Um, I think he spent a year in, in total um, in prison. He was sentenced to two years. Um, and the charges were really incredibly flimsy um, things that they were able to make stick, including um, playing a record to an audience of uh, one person in his living room, um, which wasn't even banned yet. Um, is that why you have a moment in the show where someone, one person is listening to a track and we, nobody else can hear it? Is that, exactly, is that yeah. a part of that story? Yeah. Mm. We're trying to sort mm. of uh, recreate uh, the illegal listening mm. of the record. Um, and yes, and then he was uh, released in 1973 uh, um, after a year in prison. And that was also quite interesting because... Um, the government uh, issued a sort of a special amnesty um, in honour of uh, victorious February, which is the the uh, communist, the date of the communist takeover. And the amnesty referred to only people who'd been sentenced to two years or less mm. uh, in prison for a particular types of charges and who were 60 or over. And Victoria's February is also my granddad's birthday, and oh. he turned 60 that day. Oh. And um, Amnesty International said that, as far as they know, he was the only prisoner to be affected by this amnesty. Wow. Um, and so it's possible that some of Amnesty International and, and sort of my family's agitation overseas had helped and that they just thought it's not worth keeping him because it's attracting too much negative attention he was released and then uh, obviously they my found that found my family continued to be blacklisted and a few years later my mum was trying to get into university and she had graduated with top grades but she was rejected eight times and whatever she applied for they said no um so finally my grandma put her foot down. My granddad had never wanted to leave Slovakia. Whatever they were throwing at him, he he felt loyal to it as a place. Um, but she put her foot down. They immigrated to Germany because they could all speak German. Um, and my granddad died just two years later. Oh. Um, and and he, I was born eight years after that. So, oh, so you missed him. You really did miss him by, yes, I, rather like I missed my grandfather by a lot of years. So this flat in Germany, is that a recreation of, of the, what, their home in Slovakia? I read that somewhere. Have I got that wrong? Yeah, so they, um, when they emigrated, they, were able, they took everything with them. So they had to provide an itemised list of every single thing that they were taking to the government. And we have that list. It includes dishcloths. Oh um, sorry, I'm just trying to think that's what a subversive thing a dishcloth can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and not, they had not. a lot of stuff, so, you know, providing an itemised list would have been no mean feat. And, yeah, they took absolutely everything. They took their, um, you know, Formica kitchen cabinet. <laughs> um, so, they, yeah, they tried as best they could to, to recreate that uh, flat in Munich. Mm. So, you know that thing about you couldn't make it up, but you sort of have... You, yeah, I mean, we're lo I'm looking at it, and I'm and I'm sort of knowing it's true. It's very surreal, but I think possibly his cabaret was surreal anyway. I mean, I'm sure you are channeling him. Um, he left behind all these books, didn't he? And now, how is your Slovak? You seem to be speaking it perfectly in the show. 
Um, I could... back is um, reasonable. I speak it with my mum. I used to speak it with my grandma. So it's quite domestic. Um, so I and I didn't grow up reading Slovak. So it's a bit. It was a bit of an effort for me to get into it. Um, but I'm very lucky that Slovak uh, sounds how it looks. So uh, it's fairly easy to read. I did not um, know that because Czech doesn't, does it? I, I'm not sure about Czech, but mm. Slovak is, is fairly straightforward. Mm. Um, not too many surprises. <laughs> um, just just vocabulary is mm. an issue for mm. me. So um spent a lot of time uh, asking my mum questions and Google Googling things. Mm. Um, and there's sometimes I was reading the autobiographies and I would be they're 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 very detailed. Um, he writes with a lot of context, and so mm. sometimes I would be trying to skim to look for the word I <laughs> so that I could find something that was about his experience and I remember mm. there's one chapter that I was skimming skimming I couldn't find it and then I realized that he was writing about himself in the third person oh just I just see yes well the people do that don't they I mean, just yes about one chapter he oh, just one chapter <laughs> just for one chapter it began you know there was a there was a man or you know. But they're so, all. Oh, I have to go yeah. back to the beginning now. But, but all of the all all of these are published, aren't they? I mean, you had them there as books, or did they're you? They're published. Uh, so he wrote five, um, and four of them are published. They were published after his death by my grandma and, mm. and uh, uh, publishing friends in Slovakia, um, and one was just a manuscript which was confiscated by the secret police. So um, Of course, there has to be one of those, doesn't there? So, yeah. so, but there are four or five of them, and you say they're not chronological. And that, um, is that no, right, or they are? Loosely, mm. but um, the two middle ones... So the first one is about Preshov, his hometown, the cultural scene, his childhood, and the last one is about his time in prison. Mm. Um, but the middle two are slightly um parallel but one focuses on um sort of anti-semitism and his personal life and the other one focuses more on his career um so that's why in the show I say I had to sort of read those two side by side mm. to piece some things together yeah. I, I think it's a sort of wonderful treasure trove and um, it really is as if he was leaving it for you to do something with I feel um because you I don't I don't know what you would have done without it, but you must have all really, you must really feel as if you know him. I don't know, yeah. I, it's, it's tricky. I think over the course of making the show, I feel like I've gotten to know him. Um, I don't know, yeah. I suppose it's an ongoing... I know it's, it's mm. a, I'm not silly enough to think that what I've done is anything other than a very subjective... Um, so I think I've probably looked for the things, mm. you know, I've been I've gravitated towards the things that I was interested in or the things that I maybe wanted to hear or read or. Mm. Um, but I, I feel I've got a good feeling as well from things that other people have written about him. And yeah, I feel like I could guess his reaction <laughs> to the show. I think he'd probably. Probably have some. Uh, some advice. Oh, there'd be some advice. notes with that. <laughs> I think they would be with a with a smile, you know. Yes. He, uh, my mum told me that he uh, prided himself on never smiling at his own jokes. Um, <laughs> so I think he probably would have told me with a very straight face, you know, where where things could be improved. Um, yes, it sounds maybe maybe. So let's talk about 
let's go back to the show now because um, that, that was fantastic if people could see your face you know you're, you've got this sort of wistful loving smile on your face very granddaughterly smile I think yeah. <laughs> yeah. so I think you must feel that you're channeling him with this idea of this very inclusive uh, cabaret where you want the audience that you blur the distinction between those on the stage and those in the audience um, where I saw it at the Camden People's Theatre we were sitting in an um, pews I think it was actually I think they're using pews there aren't they but you invited us on the stage if we wanted to come for the, a New Year's Eve party set in 1957 is that right? Yeah. Yes um, so actually I'll share with you the reason my husband didn't leave Parkwood he was quite convinced that it was going to lead by to a raid by the secret police um, well, Given that it wasn't going to be the real secret, please, I'm not quite sure why he was so um, cowardly. (laughs) So I don't. I hope they might not. We're not going to be raided by the secret police in the UK because I can see it's going to be really hard. (laughs) It really made me laugh. That it's not like him. I don't know what that was about. Uh, Anyway, he he missed out on the the little bubbly. So there you go. But I thought that was lovely. I know in other venues because I've read that um, you've managed to get people seated cabaret style at tables yeah. so you could move among them with your little glasses and so forth which is yeah. lovely too you know I got to sit on the armchair the, the big armchair which was rather wonderful so I really did feel I was at this party you know and I got the comfy yeah. chair and yeah. so there's a lot of that going on isn't there so how did you think come up on that structure well um I think one of the moments in the show um that's really key is where I read this quote that I read in his autobiography about what drew him to Cabaret. And this is where he says about loving it because of the way it engages with the present moment and blurs the distinction between the performers and the audience. And and the reason that was such a big moment for me to read that is because that was already what I was interested in. That's Mm. already the theatre that I was trying to make. Um, I uh, am not... uh, really interested in in the fourth wall no no um with you on that one (laughs) (laughs) i don't i get quite nervous if i can't see the audience Mm. um i really thrive off that interaction Mm. i my favorite shows are ones which in which non-actors are telling their own stories and um and that's the kind of work that i was trying to make and um, no, not to telling their own stories. Yes, that's quite close to the community plays that I yeah. specialise yeah. in. Yes, mm, like so, it. Mm. Um, I'd made a show about the pub around the corner from where I grew up. Oh, right. Up, and I'd collected oral histories from and stories from people. Wow. Who, where? Uh, sorry, where was the pub? Uh, yeah. That's in North London, in, in Bounds Green. Oh gosh. Yeah. You are a little kindred spirit to me then, aren't you? Gosh, how amazing. <laughs> yes, collecting stories and bringing them to the stage, that's where it's at. Yeah. yeah and with exactly. music, it has to be with music, doesn't it? And it mm. was with music, yeah. Mm. And it was Will Gardner um, wrote some songs for that mm. as well. So in this case, in the case of making this show, originally I'd also wanted to include other people's grandparents' stories, but it sort of became apparent that there were too too much going on. Gosh, you, you know, we'd have been there all night. It might have been exactly. wonderful, but I think he's much too colourful, important, talented and amazing to share a show with anybody else. <laughs> but you've got a future. You know, they're, they're all being told, you know, give your grandchildren your story or... Um, grandchildren you must collect your grandparents story whilst not not whilst they're still here mentally if 
apart from anything yeah. else in this day and age. Um, so maybe that you could actually specialise in uh, Well, in so that. we've actually got a spin-off project um, that we did at South Street Art Centre in Reading in November, and we're doing it with the Manchester Jewish Museum um, this month. Wow. February, um, where we are working with um, non-active participants who want to share stories of their grandparents. So oh, that's it's like wonderful. a rendezvous spin-off. Oh. It's like a rendezvous spin-off. It's called The Great and the Grand. And um, it, the same team of us mm. are working to um, write songs with participants and, um, and share stories of grandparents. So this is really the type of theatre I wanted to make anyway. And so the fact that that was what my granddad was also interested in, that really just made everything click into place mm. for me. And, for example, he said... Uh, we used at the start of the show this actual um, prologue in uh, and from one of his cabarets. And at the end of that cabaret, uh, at the end of that prologue, he um, he calls for volunteers from the audience, which are actors planted in the audience. Yes, so, so we emulate mm, that. You did, didn't you? I, yes, I nearly fooled us. <laughs> <laughs> Only because she was so brilliant, she looked like she was <laughs> dazzled in you know in the car headlights. Oh, all right, I'll I'll have a go. All of you are very, very brilliant at looking as if you're just doing something extempore, but actually you're not. Mm. <laughs> I always joke that um, that we're not big fans of acting, but we <laughs> accidentally sort of gave ourselves the most difficult acting challenge possible, mm. which is acting as if we weren't are not acting. Um, <laughs> well, you, you, you rise to it brilliantly, I have to say. <laughs> but, yeah, and then for the party, I just, I was, you know, I was reading about how sociable my grandparents were and I just I just got it into my head that that we would have this party on the stage in the living room um and it's interesting that your husband had that reaction because I did I wanted to create that sense of welcome and warmth and intimacy to try to then when you discover that there was a bug in there all the mm. time that that the audience also feels a little bit like um, the carpet has been pulled out from under them to feel a, a little bit betrayed as well, that they were there in the living room having a party and actually they were being monitored all the, all the time. Um, and, yeah, I just I just love, uh, I love handing out alcohol. I love, uh, I love getting the audience involved in a really, what I hope is a very kind of safe way that nobody feels under pressure um, that something horrible is going to that they're going to be asked to do something embarrassing but just that's um, what was so great yes it's yeah. nice audience participation actually we haven't mentioned um i'm going to call it the christmas or hanukkah cracker jokes at the beginning we all get a bit of paper and it's well some of us do anyway i got one and i got to read it out of yeah. um and, and they are uh, they look a lot like the bits of paper you get in Christmas crackers, but Christmas cracker jokes, and I'm sure they're meant to. And they're some of his jokes, aren't they? But they're all yeah. very subversive jokes about sort of communism, fascism, being spied on. Well, I think all the ones so, I heard were. Uh, so the jokes are... Um, the the reason they're on these small bits of paper is they're trying to um, emulate the actual piles of jokes that we found oh, in right. grandma's flat. Which, mm. So he had a kind of... Uh, endless roller decks of these jokes on that size paper um, and so and they are all taken from his book 
which is a collection of jokes called 1001 Jokes. Yes, great um, title because 1001 Arabian Nights, so it's a good number. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't be surprised to hear there's at least 1002 there, though. I think there's, yeah, there's, there's a few more. And yeah, we, and we looked through the book for, well, my mum and I looked through the book for ones which we thought would resonate and sort of be translatable in English. And they're actually a mixture. Um, some of them are just completely generic. So in the book, they're divided into themes. Um, so you've got kind of family, uh, geography, um, love, you know. So and, and we took some from all sections. So they're not all um, political jokes, although mm. quite a few of them are. Some of them are just, uh, you know, uh, about children or... Um, relationships and mm. oh, but you sort of picked the political ones I think did you uh, well, or, it's a mixture mm, and then mm, it just mm. depends on the night who volunteers to read one out yeah yeah so well, that's my, my great moment of stardom in your show early <laughs> on so that, that got me well. yeah that got me past my stage fright if I was going to have any so have you heard of the comedian harmonists they were a satirical group in 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 I think maybe as far back as the Weimar Republic and they had to escape to, to, to America but you actually sort of channel them as well. I'm sure he would have known about them. It's that thing about harmonising a cappella or with the sorts of instruments you use. I mean, you, you've got a wonderful selection of instruments. That very, again, it's very evocative, you know, the accordion, the flute, but that idea of the harmonising and the comedy together, um, that's a party sort of atmosphere too, isn't it? It's, and, and it's also got a sense of time and place, I think. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, you, you must have thought all that one through, and your your wonderful pair. I mean, you know, I keep wanting keep wanting to say Tom Andrews and Will Gardner because I think That's correct. yeah, we're going to hear a lot from them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think shout yeah, well, their names. Loudly. Yeah, I think so. Yes, I mean, I you know, this is something very very special. The thing is, if anyone could see you now, you smile all the time, and it's beautiful. There's a lot of smiling in the show, and I think that makes it very inclusive as well it, you know it's a welcoming smile a sharing smile did you even think about that or you just, do you all just smile a lot i i don't think about that <laughs> well, don't think all. about it now then i could have ruined it you might never I, I, once, um, I when i was working at the pub in barnes green mm. i was in a really terrible mood one day i remember and a customer said oh got such a lovely smile oh. I thought, am I smiling now? I feel miserable. Well, you have. No, you have got a lovely smile, but actually everybody did. I mean, sometimes it's a sort of wicked, wicked smile. Yes, sometimes that was deliberate, mm. yeah. So during mm. the interrogation, mm. we thought maybe this is a way to actually make it a little bit creepy, mm. to be grinning. Tell me about the song where you had you taught us to say something, actually, in Slovak, didn't you? Socialism with the Human Face, such a clever song. And that's Dubček's slogan, is that right? Because that's a whole bit about yeah. Dubček, yeah. Um, and yet you're sort of sending it up, though, aren't you? Um, you know, yeah. hero that he was, but you still are. So what you say the wonderful phrase that you taught us. Slutsko tvaro. Slutsko tvaro. And that means... That means with a human face. With a so human face. The full slogan is socialismus slutsko tvaro. Socialismus slutsko tvaro. Yes. Yeah. I don't think my Slovak's that brilliant, but I, that's what I wanted to learn. Oh, and, that was mm, good. I, I, that, I love that song. So that song uh, about socialism with a human face, all about the history of the Prague Spring, that was Tom's brainchild. So when I when we first started talking about making a show, he said, I want to write a song about the Prague Spring. Um, he's really interested in, in politics and in socialism in particular. So 
um, he read whatever he could mm. find that was written in English about the details of what happened during the Prague Spring. And then he came up with this concept mm. where, um, and full of many, many puns about the human face. Um, and the the song has this uh, sort of uh, four or five verse structure. And over the mm. course of the song, as you learn about the Prague Spring, the song itself sort of breaks down and reveals its own no, its own hypocrisy. Or mm, that's I, it's sort of there, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of musically mm, is mm, undermined. Yes, by the invasion um, of the Soviet. Yeah, I, I did feel that right from the beginning that it had this satirical raised eyebrow. Can we call it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Definitely had it. It's all a metaphorical eyebrow raised. January 1968, Antonin Novotny, Stalin's last political descendant, is involuntarily leaving his position as head of the Czechoslovak Communist Party. In his place, they elect the little-known, slightly stuttering Slovak with brilliant plans to reform, Alexander Dubček. Dubček refers to this new reformed direction as socialism with a human face, or in Slovak, socialismus s ludzkou tvaro. S ludzkou tvaro. A simple message meaning Lutsko Tvaro. A human visage, it's got human eyes and it's got human ears to heed your human cries and ease your human fears. Slutsko Tvaro. That's socialism as it could or it should or it ought to be. So chase away the doom and gloom and we'll turn to face a face as human with Slutsko, Slutsko Tvaro. On the 5th of April, Dubček captures the imagination of the nation when he publishes the Action Programme, a plan to revitalize Czechoslovakia. He proposes freedom of movement, freedom of assembly, an end to state censorship, decentralization, greater autonomy for the courts, new limits on the power of the secret police, even the promise of democratic, multi-party elections. It's such a lovely place in our now we've embraced the face with us, Luska Tvaro. Ruling with style and grace, that's us, Luska. It's good though, Tvaro. Call up your granny, cause it's human face time. We're breaking records in our human race time. So if you're fed up with the status quo, just Luska, Luska Tvaro. Tell me about the number where we have a sort of compass speaking to us from the future and about and going looking back to when there was such a thing as a smile. Is that yeah. is that sounds like it must be one of your grandfathers, but tell me about yeah. that one because that is, is a brilliant thing. It's what it could almost be a whole show on its yeah. own. So that is the prologue from one of my granddad's cabarets, which is called The World Without Smile. And um, I think he used the sort of going back in time framing device in a number of his cabarets um, as a sort of an, a, an excuse to have a red thread going through the show. And so in this one, um, it starts with the idea that, so it was written in 1947 and it's mm. set in 2047. And the idea is that an, an atomic bomb has dropped mm. and uh, it has destroyed everything and now we're slowly people are 
um, trying to rebuild. And this professor is um, the introduction. The prologue is a professor telling the audience it's 2047. An atomic bomb has dropped. Um, but I have discovered that before the atomic bomb, there was such a thing as laughter. And I have no idea what it is. I just I know what it sounds like. I know that it affects the throat oh, yes. and the and the it it, it deforms the face. Um, but they, <laughs> and we hear they, it, don't we? Yeah, we actually hear it. Yeah, sorry, go on. But, but the big joke is um, that that he doesn't know what it is. That mm. he thinks it's something terrible. Um, and then he says, but luckily, as it's now the future, twenty forty seven, we can actually go back in time. So let's go back in time and find out what laughter is. And then the rest of the show is a series of scenes um, meeting uh, famous figures throughout history and trying to work out what laughter is. And um, and I'm sure that they are all meant to be very funny scenes, uh, meeting you know Galileo and Adam and Eve and, and people like that. Um, and then the show, the, the end of the show is the time traveler discovering what laughter is because he accidentally makes somebody laugh and... <laughs> don't you think that sort of sums up your grandfather that one i mean it's it's got everything that you've sort of said so far it's got the satire the whimsy um the daring because 1947 was quite a dangerous time i'm thinking so and 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 there's it's rye w-r-y it's kind of sad elegiac it's so many things which your show yeah. is, and I think I think you have inherited something. You call yourself a theatre maker, I notice. Um, yeah. I like that a lot. It's, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good thing to call yourself, isn't it? Not a playwright, not a director, not this, not that. A theatre maker. That's very nice. I think nice. it's useful. I find it, yeah, exactly. I find it useful because we devise these our shows together, um, so there isn't really the the stages and the roles mm. aren't really so separate. Um, we kind of directed it together. Um, I wrote it, but sometimes I wrote it after the music was written. I would write something to go with the music. Mm. Sometimes I would write first. So it does feel useful, but it is also, I think it is a bit confusing. Some people um, think that that means I'm talking about building sets. Oh, really? I've never crossed yeah, my mind think, for a moment. You know, I think but, it's beautiful. Uh, I think it's a term that m maybe more and more people who make device theatre mm. are using, and I find it useful. Yeah, I like it a lot. Now, I just yeah. one, don't want to keep you too much longer, um, but I wanted to ask you, you've done this show at JW3, the Jewish Cultural Centre. You've done it in, in um, Jewish settings. You've done it at, at a non, you know, non, not specifically Jewish settings, although I'm guessing you do attract quite a Jewish audience. Does it feel very different, somewhere like the Camden People's Theatre from JW3, say? Um, it was very different, uh, I think, but I'm not sure. I think that's just down to the, the audiences that those venues have. I think um, JW3 had a slightly older audience. That's interesting. And Camden mm. People's Theatre... Mm. Um, they have a lot of performances from emerging artists mm. and uh, a really young, probably theatre-making crowd. <laughs> so mm. it definitely did, does, does feel different mm. um, and it resonates in, in different ways. We performed the show in Bratislava oh. um, a few years ago, um, so right when it was just mm. still almost a work in progress. And so when we performed it in mm. Bratislava, that was probably the 
most different response that we've had because um, I think the obviously it's a lot closer to home that's obvious but um, there's a this record that we play to one audience member and then it's it's a very well-known song in Slovakia and the Czech Republic by Karel Krill everyone knows how beautifully you can speak in Slovak that sounded wonderful to me <laughs> well that's actually mm. bad Czech pronunciation oh right oh Czech <laughs> right okay so tell me tell me and what does that mean uh, it means Little Brother Shut the Gate. Mm. And it was a protest song written by Karel Kril the day after the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia oh. in 1968. Mm. And um, uh, when and one of the songs that Tom has written, one of the um, pieces that he's written is inspired by that music. Um, so that's a bit harder for a, a British audience mm. to recognise. But when we performed it in Slovakia, it had such an amazing reaction and... Um, there's also a moment where that song leaks out of a tape player in the audience and nobody, no one in the audience knows that's going to happen. And when we did it in Bratislava and the tape came on, uh, half of the audience spontaneously joined in. Oh. Um, and they, they didn't know it was coming, but they just they were on the edge of their seat. You could feel when the one person was listening to the record, they mm. were so desperate to hear it. Um, oh. And that was really... Uh, really uh, moving moment um, and we are hoping to uh, tour it to Slovakia and mm. to Prague you're going to get more of that because you're going back aren't you to both yeah, are so. you are you yeah. not going back to both the Czech Republic and to, to Slovakia is that yes, right that's mm. yeah yeah, August, yeah so you'll get that sort of reaction all over I the place so. they're, go they're going to love it aren't they so and we love it I mean and it's different every night isn't it and yes. I mean, you know, I mean, no all shows up. But I think very specifically a show that has the audience drawn in like that, you're going to sense it more. And I count myself lucky. I liked the audience I was in a lot. We were a mixed group of age age group, yeah. and I liked it very much. And I did like, I, yeah, I can see, I, I, I sort of liked it not being 100% Jewish because that was interesting too. But you obviously have attracted a lot of Jews. And, I th and, and there was a sort of sense of wonderment in it engagement in the audience I think you know sort of wanting to know more and that's, that's the most I could ask for mm. yeah well I think you got it anyway look I want to thank you so much for sparing me this time and for actually telling me and so that our listeners can hear that the actual story of your grandfather's life as well as, as so much about the show and uh, my advice is catch up with it because you are touring it quite extensively aren't you in the next two or three months around the UK. So yes, we've got a few dates coming mm. up. Right, so there's absolutely no excuse for not, for not seeing the show. You have to see the show, don't you? <laughs> anyway, I want to thank you, as I said, very much and, and wish you everything you wish for yourselves in the future. Thank you. Thanks so much, Judy.